Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, much has been made of the first anniversary of Russia's so-called special operation in Ukraine by the Western press. Countless hours of television and oceans of ink have been spilt to convince citizens of NATO nations of the righteousness of Kyiv's cause and, more importantly, our noble motives in supplying its army with billions of dollars and an incomprehensible amount of high-tech weaponry. In fact, Washington et al. has invested so much in the successful outcome of the war, for now, Officially accepting the effort has been a tragic folly is all but impossible. But just off camera, the reality chorus is growing more voluble. Robert Freeman is founder and executive director of the Global Uplift Project. He's a past educator and author of the best one-hour history series of books covering history from the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution to the Protestant Reformation, French Revolution, and the Great Wars of the last century. Robert's recent article, published at commondreams.org, Ukraine and the Tunnel at the End of the Light, is a hard-eyed assessment of both the disaster that is the Ukraine-Russia war and the doomed political and economic dynamics behind the conflict. Today, Robert Freeman and shedding the rosy aura around Ukraine's war prospects. Well, welcome to the program, Robert. Thank you. Well, 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 it's my great pleasure, of course, to have you now, Robert. Before getting to your excellent article over at uh, Common Dreams, who and what exactly is the Global Uplift Project? The Global Uplift Project is a nonprofit that I founded in 2007. We build small scale infrastructure projects in the developing world classrooms, medical clinics, uh, water wells, latrines, playgrounds, science labs, libraries, very small scale, cost about $10,000 a piece. Projects that dramatically improve the capacity of a local people to, to take care of themselves, to develop themselves. Since we started in 2007, we've done 287 of these projects in 24 of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, and I'm just looking at your website now. It's letters tgup.org, tgup.org. How about some of these people that you're working with? Uh, how long did it take you to, to assemble all of these collaborators? Well, it's taken the 15 years <laughs> since we've been doing it. That's, that's almost our most valuable asset is a network of operators on the ground in 24 of the poorest countries in the world that we have deep sustaining relationships with. So I can pick up the phone, it's actually the email, and in any number of countries within a matter of hours have a classroom started or a medical clinic started or a science lab or a latrine or any of those other things that I talked about. The thing that two things that are really unique about TGUP are these. Number one, anybody can participate at any level that they want. You can donate $1 and say, I wanted to go to that classroom in Kenya. Or you can donate $10,000 and say, I want to go to that vocational training center in Tanzania. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I've raised money from private foundations that cover all of our operating costs, literature, phones, website, travel, software subscriptions. Because of that, every single dollar that an individual donates goes into their designated project. I'm not aware of any other charity in the world that can do that and demonstrate it. That's important as well because uh, I know in my own uh, in my own case, I when I was a younger man, I visited uh, Guatemala for example and I saw the the grinding poverty firsthand oh. and so ever since I have a soft spot for 
uh, Guatemala. And uh, I know that those conditions exist in other countries, but because I was there, because I saw it, and I'm sure it's the same for other people who say they would like to support some of your uh, many um, projects around the world. Oh, unless you have been there like you have, and thank you for mentioning that. Unless you've been there, you cannot imagine how bad it is. Most places in the world don't have running water. That means they don't have sewage. So what are you going to do with the poop? You know, if you're walking around ankle deep in your own poop, you're dying from the E. coli. They don't have education. They don't have health care. They don't have infrastructure. There's no electricity, so there's no refrigeration, so there's no food security. I could go on and on. The things that we take for granted. You know, you could be the poorest person in this country, and you still get 12 years of free pretty good quality education. And if you can't afford the meals, the government will buy you two meals a day. And if you break your arm and fall down, you can go into any emergency room in this country and they will fix it for free. I could go on and on for hours about the infrastructure that we've spent trillions of dollars accumulating that's available to everybody in this country, but that is almost magic to anybody outside of this country. Over their lives, they will help about 2 million people. About 2 million of the poorest people in the world have just a slightly better chance in life. Well, now, now, Robert, of course, uh, your article is more about geopolitics and geopol- this is These two things aren't divorced at all. In fact, that the conditions that we see much of the world living under are directly related to the rich countries spending their resources on war and war making and maximizing profit for their home corporations. Yes. Tell me about your association, Robert, with commondreams.org. You've you've got quite a few articles up there, as well as one we're going to talk about Ukraine and the tunnel at the end of the light. Well, I've been writing for Common Dreams since 2003. I guess that makes it 20 years. You know how time gets away from you so fast. And what a 20 20 years it's been. It's tumultuous. It, It sounds like a cliche, and it probably is in every epic. But we're in the middle of a transformational epic in global affairs. And that's basically what I write about, the transformation, you know, the power structures that promote it, those that resist it, the ways they resist it, and how people can be engaged with it. Well, in your article, again, Ukraine in the tunnel at the end of the light, it's it's a a play on words on the, the, can you describe what you mean by that? Well, the tunnel, you're right, it's a play on words. It's a play on the phrase light at the end of the tunnel. And those of her, who are of a certain age will remember the Vietnam War. It was always, don't worry, there's light at the end of this tunnel. And no matter how bad the losses are, it's going to be good. Robert McNamara, in not, who was the Secretary of Defense in 1967, mounted a national campaign to persuade the American people, don't worry, we know your sons are coming home in body bags, but this is going to be worth it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, it was all a lie. The Tet Offensive in 1968 blew the whole thing out of the water. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong Irregulars in the South mounted a, well, they attacked more than 100 U.S. military installations throughout the South simultaneously. It completely blew apart the fiction that there was light at the end of the tunnel. So my article, as you say, is a play on words. It says there's a tunnel at the end of the light. And what I mean by that is this. Up until now, all the coverage in the mainstream media has been, it's all about light. You know, those plucky Ukrainians, they're socking it to those plod-footed Russians, and they're eventually going to win, and democracy is going to prevail, and it's going to be beauty and light, and God bless America. That's what it's been up until now. It hasn't been, if you follow the mainstream media. In fact, if you 
get your information outside of the mainstream media, it's quite a different story. The U.S. and its proxy, the Ukrainians, are losing badly and have been since the beginning of the war. Within the first week, the Russians took out the Ukrainians' air force and their air defense systems. In the second week, they took out the weapons depots and the armories. In the third week and following after that, they systematically took out the artillery that was being shipped in from former Warsaw Pact countries. They took out all of the artillery. They've since then gone after the fuel delivery systems, the transportation infrastructure. In the last couple of months since December, they have taken out more than half of the electrical generation and transmission infrastructure. This is not a light at the end of the tunnel story. It's a tunnel at the end of the light. Now, there's a second half to that narrative, and that is this. The U.S. will end up losing this war and has to find a way to get out of it while trying to save face. But there's not going to be a face-saving exit because of this. The rest of the world, what I call what is generally called the global south, has seen the ways that the U.S. and the West conduct itself in the world, and they're sick of it. And they're setting up a non-Western, multipolar world order where they can trade among themselves, respect each other's sovereignty, mutual promotion of economic benefits, all without involvement by the Western world. No trade, no dollars, nothing. And that is the real tunnel at the end of the light because it dramatically narrows the U.S. strategic opportunities in the world. It will not be able to conduct itself as it has since World War II when it was a giant among pygmies. It will not be able to go around and brutalize and destroy and carry out coups and intimidate and expropriate nations of the world as has been its habit since World War II. And that shrunken field of strategic opportunity, the shrunken strategic primacy is what I mean by the tunnel at the end of a life. Well, does that, that makes make sense? Well, it does to me, but I don't think that the people in the United States or Canada or the, the so-called Western world are, are really getting the message, not through their, their regular media sources, for sure. During the Vietnam War, another uh, a common trope was we're fighting over there so that we don't have to fight the Russians over here. We're seeing that that has been uh, regurgitated in this instance, the implication being that Russia is on a war of expansion right now and that Ukraine is the first domino to fall. The other the other thing that people are saying uh, on the other side of that is that America is willing to fight the Russians in Ukraine right to the last Ukrainian, but perhaps not to send their own troops in. You write an estimate of 150,000 Ukrainian troops have been lost. uh, And I'm assuming you mean killed outright, not to mention the probably three times that number wounded in in one way or another. What about the human cost over there? Well, you're exactly right. The best estimates we have. Now, in December, Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission, probably the highest political figure, in all of Europe, he said, Ukrainians already lost 100,000 people. Now, that's a pretty incredible statement because remember, she's on the side of the Ukrainians. But what she's implicitly saying is these losses are unsustainable. If you compare them, for example, in the, in the Vietnam War, the United States lost 58,000 soldiers, but that was over a period of nine years. If you take the one year 
that the Ukrainians have been fighting, and the 100,000 is now pretty well understood to be 150,000, the Ukrainians are losing soldiers at a rate of 140 times what the U.S. loss was in Vietnam. And it is patently unsustainable. That's part of the fact that the war by the Ukrainians is not winnable. They, they're out of soldiers. 10 million of their 36 million people have left the country. Those that have left who can already fight have already been fighting. They're down now to dragooning 16-year-old boys and 60-year-old men to come and try to fight in the, in the trenches. So the losses are staggering. They're vastly, vastly outweigh anything the U.S. experienced in Vietnam. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm today speaking with Robert Freeman. Robert is the founder and executive director of the Global Uplift Project. You can go to tgup.org to find out what they're doing. He's also a past educator and author of the Best One Hour History series of books, and they cover history from the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution to the Protestant Reformation, French Revolution, and the Great Wars of the last century, among other topics. We're speaking today about Robert's recent article published at commondreams.org, Ukraine and the Tunnel at the End of the Light. And you've written another article in December, uh, again, at Common Dreams uh, on what you term as peak Zelensky. And this was written just after Christmas. Can you describe what you mean by peak Zelensky? I don't know if you remember uh, his tour of the U.S. in December to try to raise money and, you know, keep the faith alive. But it, it was becoming ludicrous. He's received, first of all, before he became president of Ukraine, he was a comic. He was a comedian on a Ukrainian television show. His greatest claim to fame was that he could play the piano with his penis. And he used to do that in some of his, I'm serious, he used to do that in some of his stand-up comedy routines. And the government is a crypto-fascist oligarchy. It is in no way a democracy. He has shut down opposition media. He's banned opposition political parties. He has jailed those who have protested against his policies. So he kind of has the audacity, but it's not his own fault because this is scripted by the American intelligence community to come here and say, this is democracy fighting against autocracy. Like you said, we have to fight him over there so we don't have to fight him here. He goes to the U.S. Congress, stands in the well of the U.S. Congress and receives 18 standing ovations. He's compared in the media to Winston Churchill, who basically helped the British win World War II. And he's named Times Man of the Year. How much more farcical, literally farcical, how much overhyped can it get that this guy who is the president of the poorest, most corrupt nation in Europe and is running a crypto-fascist oligarchy, this guy's going to be the next Winston Churchill and the Time Man of the Year? That's what I meant by peak Zelensky. It, it, it literally, we can't get any more hyperbolic about over, you know, promoting who this guy is and what the mission is. And so my point of that article was it can only go down from here. Well, and two, two months later, Zelensky is still marching on. And I, I, I think he doesn't believe, at least in the media in the West, doesn't believe that his peak is reached because they keep promoting him with these uh, same ridiculous situations and, and settings. Uh, and maybe he is the next Winston Churchill. Uh, Churchill's biography, if people looked a little deeper than the Second World War, they might be surprised <laughs> at what they find. You mentioned, now I said off the top that, you know, it's it's not really uh, uh, mentionable right now that this war is lost. But Mark 
Smiley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if it was, if I remember right, it was back in September, he first began floating the idea that that this was a lost cause and that America was throwing good money after bad. Uh, and speaking of uh, Van, uh, uh, Van der in Germany, uh, just last over the weekend, there was 50,000 in Berlin uh, protesting the war, and there was a human chain holding hands between Osnabrück and uh, Munster, two cities that were um, integral in ending the Thirty Years' War and signing the truce that ended that uh, 17th century conflict, does Miley signal the fact that it is becoming now palatable within the political circles in D.C. to start actually floating the idea that uh, this is a lost cause and America and its allies would be better to back out as quickly and as gracefully, as you mentioned, as they can? Well, that's exactly the case, and it's significant that Milley is a general. He's a military guy. He's not a political guy, is he? And he said, I think his quote was, it will be very, very difficult to remove the Russians from all the Ukrainian territory. Essentially saying, we're not going to win this thing. You know, they're in there, we're not going to get them out. Now, he got his knuckles wrapped and had to get back on the on the program with the, the conventional, the accepted narrative. But it is starting to leak out everywhere. You've got Anthony Blinken saying, well, we would consider a peace going back to the pre-2024, I'm sorry, 2022. That's a very significant climb down from the original position that, no, we're going to have to go back to pre-2014, back to Crimea. So Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is already starting to moot that, you know, we would be willing to, to settle this thing on terms that are less than we've advertised. You got Newsweek saying, this is a headline from Newsweek in January. Biden has offered Putin 20% of Ukraine in order to end the war. You got the Washington Post in an article a couple of weeks ago going, look, we've got to be realistic. There are limits. There are limits to what we're going to be able to do in Ukraine, and we're beginning to approach them. You got the Rand Corporation, which is one of the most important strategic advisors to the U.S. intelligence community saying, and this is a quote, costs of a long war greatly outweigh the benefits. So no matter where you take it from, whether it's the military people, whether it's the press, whether it's the intelligence services, the State Department, they're all starting to say, and this was, this was the real burden, the real import of the article, they're all starting to say, boy, this thing is a losing cause. We got to figure out how to get out. 90% of the world is not supporting us in Ukraine. This might be one of the more interesting stories, the hermetic bubble that the American public lives in, thanks to its mainstream media, largely owned by the weapons makers, that want to say, oh, yeah, this is a good fight. We're winning, blah, blah, blah. But the reality being most of the world does not support it. And we could go into why that is, but it's very significant as far as why they will likely be successful setting up a multipolar world order that says, thank you, America. We experienced 80 years since the end of World War II with a unipolar world order. We don't want it anymore. We're out of here. We're taking our toys with us. And that's the tunnel at the that's the tunnel at the end of the light. Your article, though, as well, it's subtitled China about China's Belt and Road Initiative. The picture on the front is uh, uh, accompanying your article isn't of Ukraine, but it's actually of engineers in, in a massive tunnel in Indonesia, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Your article goes into, which I found most fascinating, highlighting the uh, 
the contrast between America and its allies and, and what their vision of the world is and this great economic and uh, political development, this tsunami of uh, change for a new century represented by the BRI. Can you explain what's the BRI? Well, let me let me step back from that and put it into a context. Back in the early 20th century, a British geostrategist named Alfred Mackinder put forth the theory that a integrated Europe, Eurasia, integrated Eurasia would constitute the greatest power in the world. And ever since then, the U.S.'s principal objective in all of its foreign policies has been to prevent a integrated Eurasia. And if you notice, we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline in September of last year. Why? because that was connecting Germany with Russia for the delivery of huge volumes of low-cost gas. That is, it was affecting Eurasian integration. Now, the Belt and Road Initiative is a policy construct that was begun by the Chinese in 2013. And what it does is it delivers infrastructure to all of the nations of Asia and potentially Eurasia, if Europe wants to get on board for it. I'm talking highways, high-speed rail, electrical uh, generation and transmission, communication, ports, cities, all of the infrastructure that it takes to build an advanced international economy. And my point of departure for this, so people understand it, is it was infrastructure that made the United States. If you go back to the 19th century, the 1800s, it was the railroads that stitched together the first continental scale economy in the history of the world. Why is that important? Because of this, American producers could produce for a larger scale economy, therefore produce at larger scale and therefore at lower cost. And they were the highest volume, lowest cost producers in the world. In 1800, the US constituted 1.5% of global GDP. By 1900, they were taking 19% of a four times larger number, and the U.S. was the largest economy in the world. Fast forward to the 20th century, exactly the same thing happened in automobiles. It wasn't Henry Ford and the mass production of automobiles that made the 20th century the American century. It was the fact that we built continental network of roads, asphalt and concrete highways that stitched together every single street address in the country developed the world's largest markets for steel, rubber, plastic, gas, machine tools, developed the entire panoply of culture that we know of as suburbia. And it was the fact of that infrastructure that made it possible, once again, for producers to produce at continental scales, providing to the largest market in the world, and therefore to be able to produce at the lowest cost in the world. That is the economic basis for American primacy from 1800 up to 2000. Now, the Chinese are going to do the exact same thing, except on a scale that's about 30 times larger. When Eisenhower developed his interstate highway system, there were 150 million people in the United States. There are 5 billion people in Eurasia. And this is China's very, very savvy strategic program to knit all of them together in an economic enterprise that they're bound to China for mutual, for reciprocal mutual advantage. 
It's estimated that it's estimated that it will it will consume somewhere between thirty and fifty trillion dollars before the century is out. Well, and, and when you mentioned the the huge financial effects and cultural effects of the highway system in America in the twentieth century, it just it boggles the mind to think of the kind of effects that the BRI will have in the in the latter part of this century. As you, as you mentioned, that the scope and size of it is just dwarfing anything that's ever been done before. Robert, we're fast running out of time, but there is another aspect when you talked about America's great economic primacy in the or the 20th century, in the late 20th century and into our current times now, that primacy is based is a dollar-based primacy. In the last couple of minutes, you want you write about in your article the financial situation and how America's fiat dollar, it's not going to enjoy that primacy for much longer by the looks of things. Well, it's not. It's important. Most people don't understand this, that in 1971, Richard Nixon took the U.S. off of gold convertibility for the dollar. U.S. was running out of gold because it was running, you know, enormous deficits in Vietnam and with the Great Society programs. And he said, we can't we can't exchange gold for dollars anymore. Suck it in. And the Treasury Secretary John Connolly said, yeah, it's our dollar, but it's your problem. Well, the world had no other medium of exchange to conduct all the transactions. You know, Brazil buying coffee from uh, China, buying coffee from Brazil and Brazil buying Volkswagens from Germany. And so the dollar has endured as the primary international reserve currency ever since then. What does that mean? That means the U.S. can sell dollars to countries who need dollars to conduct their international transactions. If India wanted to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they needed dollars. If Japan wanted to buy wood from Indonesia, they needed dollars. The U.S. sells those dollars by issuing treasury debts. That is, we sell treasury bonds and bills, and those are functionally dollars. They're fungible international mediums of exchange. Now, why is this important? That ability to sell dollars is what enables us to run our massive budget and trade surpluses. In 1980, the United States only had a national debt of $1 trillion. That means Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, building out the American continent in the 1800s, First World War, the Great Depression, Second World War, and the better half of the Cold War, we had funded with only $1 trillion of debt. Today, the national debt stands at $32 trillion. And that is only made possible because we can sell dollars to other countries in order for them to have international reserve currency. That is about to end. The Countries of the global south led by Russia, by China, India, Brazil, a lot of other countries are saying, hey, we can see that this ability of the U.S. to print dollars because it's the international reserve currency, that leads to the U.S. to a lot of abusive behavior. Oh, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, should I keep going on? <laughs> Well you, well, you can't. You can't, Robert, because there is there's not enough time to go through all of the long, <laughs> long, long list of that. Uh, sadly, the Zoom is telling me it's time to, that we part. 
I really, I recommend everybody go to commondreams.org right away and get Robert Freeman's article and look at his past writing as well. And go to the project for the Global Uplift. That's tgup.org, tgup.org, the Global Uplift Project. It looks absolutely fantastic what you're doing, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on today and telling me uh, about that and uh, sharing your article with our audience. Thank you for having me. I hope it's been interesting. Until the next time, then. That's all the time I've got for this week.